Welcome to Any Way You Want It. I'm your host, Kaylin McDuff. I'm an LA-based coach for women who want to create lives based on desire. Here on the show, we like to have real conversations about sex, relationships, and life through talks with everyday people, experts, friends, and everything in between, I give you a plethora of options, different relationship models, new mindsets, perspectives, and paradigms. Listen for what sounds interesting to you and follow that. This is just the beginning of you having a life designed entirely from the specificity of your desire. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Any Way You Want It. Um, I am just completely delighted today uh, to be with um, an amazing practitioner um, named Luis Mojica. Thank you so much for being here, Luis. Thank you. Nice to be here. Absolutely. And um, I know as my listeners, you can't see Luis's background, but it's like this very Zen, I'd call it like a Zen den. Oh, nice. (laughs) I'll take it. Oh my gosh. Um, and so uh, just to let you all in on, on who Luis is, um, so he is a somatic therapist and nutritionist. Um, he lives in Woodstock, New York. Um, and I came across uh, Luis um, in my work, uh, you know, in the transformation world, I'm always sort of looking out there saying, okay, who's doing what? And, and especially, you know, in the trauma world, um, I, you know, I am not, I don't have training around trauma. I have experience with it, but I don't have training. And so recently I've been paying a lot of attention to just some of the conversations that are, that are happening inside of that world. And, you know, there's a lot of different viewpoints and different types of practitioners. And, um, and so the thing that really struck me about Luis and his work, um, I went to a session that he led inside of a community that I am a part of um, with Carolyn Elliott. And I was just telling Luis right before we hit record, I was like, I don't even really remember what you said. <laughs> but I do remember the felt experience that I had in my body of moving traumatic energy through my body and what that was like. And uh, so that's the thing that had me say, okay, I want to get this guy on the show. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I would just love to just uh, dive in. And, um, you know, like I said before, I think we'll talk, you know, a little bit about your story, because, you know, I imagine there's a, a pretty good story in terms of how you got here. And then, um, you know, I think we'll just have an open conversation about trauma and practices and and really what we can, whatever wants to come through. Um, but I would love just to, for you to give a high level of the work that you do just to sort of ground my listeners in uh, what it means for you to be a somatic therapist. Yeah, so um, there are many different modalities of somatic therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like under the umbrella term somatic psychology. It's mm-hmm. the understanding of learning how to work with, uh, whether it's a mental illness, whether it's a traumatic experience, what we would normally go to a psychiatrist or a psychologist for, learning how to work with the holistically through the body. 
and understanding that it comes from the body and it lives in the body. Mm. So the kind I was trained in is called somatic experiencing. It was, I don't like to say invented, it was kind of discovered by Peter mm. Levine. And he discovered it about 40 years ago mm-hmm. and um, created these this foundation called SEI, Somatic Experiencing International, to teach people. Mm. So I did a three-year program and I learned so much because coming from trauma myself, it was all the all the puzzle pieces kind of came together. And mm-hmm. so the, the foundational uh, understanding or philosophy with somatic therapy, somatic experiencing therapy, which is what I do, is mm-hmm. understanding how trauma is a physiological charge in the body that gets mm-hmm. stored somewhere. And no amount of talking really releases the charge. Talking identifies it, talking makes sense of it, talking puts it in a, uh, organizes it, it puts it into a category. Mm-hmm. But the release doesn't happen through the talking. It could be the mm-hmm. first step, but the actual release happens through learning how to relate to your body and that charge and then learning how to relate to other beings around you. So that's the that's the simple answer. <laughs> <laughs> I I love that so much because I, I know it's, you know, it's like, okay, how do you simplify what you do, right? In like a one or two minutes. Um, but the just the idea that, oh, we can't like actually like we have to move the energy in order mm-hmm. to heal it. That's right. I think, and I like that you keep using the word energy, like when you were talking yeah. about my presentation and, and feeling mm-hmm. trauma energy, because what I've learned through this work is that trauma is is simply energy that's mm-hmm. stored from a threatening event. That's at the end of the day, that's what trauma is. And if we're not looking right. at it energetically, then we're, we're missing it. Right. Yeah. I mean, and I just think for myself, you know, I did years of therapy, you know, especially around my relationship with my father. And, and I just remember having this experience of like, am I just going to keep rehashing this, you know? And then the thing that really made a difference for me was when I actually started getting in touch with my body and, you know, my clitoris and just moving like the energy through my body and using it as a power source. That's a really big one because when you're talking about like talking about your father, let's say for years, every time we go into the identity of the situation. So let's say Mm -hmm. you're 25 and you're talking about an event when you were 15. Mm-hmm. Every time we're identifying with that event linguistically, like we're associating with it as we speak, our mm-hmm. bodies are reactivating the charge of the event. So mm-hmm. we're going for years and years, and what we're actually doing is reactivating and essentially re-traumatizing and awaking that charge compared to how, what does it feel like to embody my 25-year-old body now? What does it feel like to feel my pleasure now? And Mm -hmm. how can those old events that are stuck in me move through my body now? It's a completely Mm -hmm. different experience. Totally. Oh, the permission for that Mm -hmm. is is so rare, I think. It changes everything. And I think what I love about it is I don't like identity. I started studying Mm -hmm. psychology initially because I wanted to be a psychologist. And Mm -hmm. so I went to college, I studied for two years. And I remember feeling like as we were approaching the DSM manual, we were approaching these diagnostic identities of people, Mm. something in me just felt wrong. It felt like I didn't want to go there. 
And I didn't know why at the time, but now I do, you know, because that that identity of what's broken in me is Mm -hmm. going to keep reaffirming and activating the charge of being broken. Whereas Mm -hmm. if I can work with someone's energetic expressions without identity, there's so much more room for shifting and transmuting. Right. Yeah. No, I was um, thinking about this other, the other day, just, yeah, identity. People put so much stock in it and we have like movements around this, right? (laughs) And even just if you think about maybe a non-chargy example of like a cancer survivor saying, I'm a survivor. That's right. That's right. I walked around for, I think, I think two years calling myself a childhood sexual assault survivor. And every time I did it, it would just, there would be this like rush of energy. Mm -hmm. And I remember just starting to feel like confined and like sick. And and it just, it didn't make sense the way I was greeted with that identity. It just didn't work anymore. So I I have experience with exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So it sounds like you like sort of started to started to realize through your work, like, oh, that's not, that's actually not who I am. That's what, so it's really interesting. Do you want the story? Oh yeah. Yeah. So I want to, you know, I sort of, (laughs) I'm like, we, we will get, we will just go to all these fun places. I do want to, yeah, I do want to sort of like, um, get into a little bit of your, of your background, right. And how you got here. So maybe this is a good little entry point. Yeah. I'd love to hear. So the short story of the background and then how it got to the question, Mm -hmm. good question you just asked is, um, so I was born with an expression uh, this is an identity known as yep. intersex, right? Mm-hmm. And it's simply, there's three different expressions of intersex. It can be chromosomal and there's no visual, visible expressions. It can be genitally. So you have mixed genitalia, like a penis and ovaries or uh-huh. testicles and clitoris, mm. or it can be hormonal. So you can have like, uh, let's say you can be born male, have male genitalia, but you make equal amounts of estrogen. So you might mm-hmm. develop breasts and hips and things like that. Yeah. So I was the latter. I had a hormonal intersex condition. I still do. I'm very sensitive to estrogen. But uh, when I was developing, when I was around nine or 10, I started developing like a woman would. I started developing breasts. I started developing wide hips. I gained weight very easily. I was very emotional. Like I was much more identified with my female peers than my male peers. And that went on simultaneously with like a male puberty as well. But the male Mm -hmm. puberty didn't fully take to me until I was 16. So it was a little later. In those years, uh, because I didn't really have a lot of awareness of my body because I was young, I didn't think much of it. Other people had awareness of my body. So my male peers were started to bully me and tell me there's something different about me. I experienced sexual assault in several instances and just endless vicious hatred and bullying because I was so (sighs) ambiguous and this is way before androgyny was popular it's way before pronoun it was way before that that was like any of this (laughs) there was zero space for it like this is like the 80 like late 80s 90s late 80s early 90s yes so there was like it was just the the worst time to have that uh but it turned out to be the best after all you know as i've come to understand it yeah Um, but this yeah go ahead i was just gonna say what was that i mean what was the experience like of being like seeing this in your body right Mm. and i and then also having this reflection from other people around you you know as like a developing teen 
Oh yeah. It's, it was very uh, fragmented. So there was the me who would stand in front of the mirror for an hour and like, look at mm-hmm. his body, look at his mm-hmm. breasts, look at his hips, look at his penis, like taking all these strange things. I had no reference for it. So I would yeah. try to like own it. I would tie my hair up. I would like dance in the mirror. I would try to be this kind of middle non-binary thing that I physiologically was, right. but it stopped when the bathroom door opened, you know, it went, it got <laughs> the bathroom door opened. I left that world there and I was yeah. shut down and I was quiet and I overate because I was so miserable and so scared of being seen. I wore mm-hmm. all this extra clothing to hide my breasts so people didn't know if they didn't see me with my shirt off. Mm-hmm. And so I developed all these illnesses because I was coping with food so, so heavily. Oh. Um, I gained almost 60 pounds. I had really high cholesterol. I was pre-diabetic. I had chronic asthma. I was on like a nebulizer machine so I could breathe because I had so much inflammation in my body. I had cystic acne. I had so many high blood pressure. I mean, like horrible panic attacks. I would pass out just from panic and anxiety. I was, and I was like 13. So it was a complete midlife crisis at 13. And, and it was like, you're saying you're, you're at this age where you're, you're just kind of, it's already super awkward for like the average bodied person. Right. Um, you know, it's already really strange. And you're like, what's my body doing? And my body was doing things that there were no words for, that there were no images for, that no one even knew because I was hiding it sometimes. Uh, and the doctors would say, oh, he's overweight, that will go away. And I knew that I had them before I gained weight. So it was like my little secret. I just let everyone believe, oh, I'm overweight, it will go away. So then I became anorexic. And I thought, okay, I'm going to lose every ounce of fat on my body. So these go away. And I lost like a ton of weight and I was really, you know, unhealthily thin. Mm -hmm. And those breasts, they were just staying right there. They were breasts. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, it was quite a, it was a good, you know, from age 10 to age 16, it was a good six years of just utter hell of being in this body that I couldn't get away from couldn't get away from this the problem which is my body and I internalized the hatred as well I can only imagine thank you so much um for sharing that the I just can imagine the yeah the confusion and the like especially in a world where you just have no reference point. None. There was no internet. No. So there wasn't. Yeah, you're wasn't like, nothing. where, and where did you grow up? Southern Pennsylvania. So it's like, oh. yeah, it's, it's like being in Tennessee, you know? And so and there was no LGBT community. Like right. there was nothing. nothing. <laughs> I was a bisexual, intersexual, by a mixed racial human being. It's like, there was no, no spot for me to fit it. Right. Wow. Oh, (laughs) I just, I'm like, my heart is just opening so wide, like feeling you now, Mm. right. And just imagining this whole journey and how it really was for you, but like you had to go through so many years of just not being able to see that. That's right. And you know, when people see me, they see initially they see like a cis white guy 
Like that's just yeah. how people, <laughs> just how people see. Yeah. So yeah. It, when I come into a room where I'm speaking to people and I'm like, yeah, you know, this, this trauma actually happens for you and we're going to learn why Yeah, there's some, not all the time, but there's an idea of like, oh God, you're privileged. You've been through nothing. You have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so the people that know my story and most yeah. people do now before they even come to my work, it's such right. a beautiful like collective of weirdos and mixed races and identities all over the place because they, they all relate yeah. to me because all those parts are in me. And so yeah. it makes the work I do even more readily received because so many different people can relate to my experience. Oh my God. Right? I'm not just this cis white guy that has no experience in pain. You know, it's like there's this whole journey. <laughs> I have been there. Wow. <laughs> I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. That is, um, uh, that's just, yeah, I'm so, like I said, I just, I just feel my heart just mm. really opening. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, so what was the thing? I imagine there was something that you found or sort of an opening that you had that moved you from that to where you are now. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. It came in phases yeah. and the first phase was music. I, I had this desire. I had this singing voice in me since I was born, but Mm -hmm. I I never wanted to be seen because of my breasts. Mm -hmm. So when I started developing, I stopped singing. I stopped acting. I stopped all these like exuberant extroverted things that I was just good at and loved doing because I didn't want any attention. Mm -hmm. So I shut all that down. And then when I was around 16, I, I watched a Joni Mitchell documentary and I, something in me felt inspired to write music when I watched it. So mm-hmm. I bought this guitar for like 50 bucks on eBay. I was, I was a dishwasher at a, at a diner and <laughs> I bought this really, oh really like low quality guitar and it was hanging <laughs> on my wall. Cause I liked the idea of being a musician. So I just had oh, it yeah. hanging there for a couple months. I walked in after watching this documentary and I picked it up and I started strumming it. And I didn't realize this until this year actually, but uh-huh. in that moment of strumming it, there were these vibrations going right into my breasts and right into my stomach and right into this core area that had been so wounded. Mm -hmm. And, and in that vibration, something started opening and I'm understanding now it was like a co-regulating experience of this energy of vibration touching the very places that had been brutalized and, and the, the expansion that happened completely automatically. I didn't, I didn't do anything. There was no willpower. It was like a mistake. And, and from there, everything just started opening. And the next, I think 14 years, we're just kind of like nonstop following that openness. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is so profound. The, like, just the, the, that was the gateway. gateway. (laughs) Right. It's like, I don't know. I, music okay but Mm -hmm. you know the thing I really hear in this just at the most basic level is that you just had this inkling of a desire like for whatever reason okay I'm being called to music okay I'm gonna buy this $50 guitar put on my wall okay let me sit with that right and there's like an there's like an a divine energy to that that's right. You know? <laughs> it, it, you're absolutely right. It was pure desire because it was not want. Yeah. I had no mm-hmm. expectation. I never wanted to be seen. I never wanted to ever sing in front of people. So right. there was something in me that moved me to the guitar, right? And that was the divine movement. 
Right. Absolutely divine. And then, you know, it's like, okay, your soul is now like calling you on this path through this yes. and you got to feel your, your soul got to feel a different kind of vibration. That's right. Moving through your body. Literally. So <sighs> there's this term we have called uncoupling and it's when you mm -hmm. remove something threatening from mm -hmm. something non-threatening. And when you're traumatized, we have all overcoupling. So for instance, if we got into a car accident, we're naturally right. going to overcouple threat with driving. So mm -hmm. this is why we emerge from events and it's hard to get back in a car. It's hard to get into a relationship or we don't want to make money because last time we did, we went to debt, you know, whatever it is, Yeah, the body associates it with threat. So in this moment, when I was strumming the guitar, there right. was this uncoupling of Oh, energy going here into my breasts can feel good. It doesn't have to hurt. Oh. And that was like the moment I didn't understand until recently, but it was so somatic. It was not in my conscious, but from that somatic uncoupling that happened in like a split second by chance, then there was this, that, that thing in me that you, that you were calling desire that moved me to right. the guitar. That thing was able to now start being nurtured by playing music and singing and writing lyrics and self-inquiry. And the more I nourished it, the more it was like opening and wanting more and wanting to come out. Oh, and then, yeah, I really hear the part of you that just trusted and kept following that. Like yes, the yes. little voice of desire. And that's the big, the, the total, the word right there is followed. Because yeah. I, I never let anyone think that I designed this. You know, it was not my choice even it was a total mm -hmm. following because it it felt so good i couldn't not follow it and i didn't have desire before then i lost right. all desires when my breast came in because right. it was threatening to be seen that was my overcoupling mm -hmm. so all my desires were just completely repressed mm -hmm. so then i became like the desire maniac you know <laughs> <laughs> thirsty for well, it yeah i mean just the experience well and i you know i sort of feel the same way about like my own sexual awakening, right? Like once I reprogrammed, like, oh, being with partners could be a safe experience. Yes. It could be pleasurable. Like they're, they're not going to abandon me, you know? All That's right. That's things. exactly right. Right. Then you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this is what it feels like to be fully alive. Yes. Are you kidding me? Yeah, you know, that's exactly what it was like. And simultaneously, I discovered Scott Cunningham's books on Wicca. And in those books oh. were these, these um, they weren't actual images, but they were mm -hmm. like descriptions of goddesses and gods. Mm -hmm. And some of them were androgynous. And so I was like, for the first time in my life, I actually had a reference of something that came before me that was part of both binaries. And so oh. then it was just like more that that part that desire was like oh i can be anything i don't have to be i go by male i don't have to be male or female i can be anything i want to be and then it, it really took off from there oh my gosh that is so powerful so this was you found the guitar at age 16 did you say yeah Okay. Wow. Okay. And then, um, so you just had years and years of like, okay, I'm just healing myself and following this desire. And I imagine, right. You might, well, I don't know, you tell me, but from what I hear, it, it almost sounds like you weren't fully conscious of like all the healing right now, looking back, 
I was, I won't even say fully. I was zero percent. I I think two years after the guitar incident, (laughs) um, I start, uh, actually, no, it was, it was a half, half a year, maybe, or eight months Uh later, my uh, girlfriend at the time, who was my best Mm -hmm. friend, her mother died suddenly of a heart attack, like while they were Mm -hmm. watching TV, she just fell over and died. And it was this shock, you know, to all of us. And I remember it prompted my mother and I to buy a juicer and we started juicing and I started eating vegetarian. I was kind of just like shifting the way I I come from very, very uh, unhealthy food habits growing up. Mm -hmm. And that was the moment I started noticing, oh, like I became conscious about health. Still Mm -hmm. nothing with trauma or emotions or psychology, but (laughs) I I was noticing, okay, as I drink this barley grass juice, my acne goes away. Like, as I don't eat this cheese, the pimples on my back go away. Like, I'm just kind of learning. learning. That's that's the most conscious I was. Oh, my gosh. Okay, but this is so amazing. I love that your journey, it sounds like it was like a 15, 16-year, like, journey of oh, kind of slow. Totally. Not, not fully realizing it, but just putting a little attention here, a little yes. attention there, you know, and I think this is, uh, I don't know, I, I think this is kind of a rare thing. You just don't hear that many stories of people like sort of slowly coming into consciousness in this way. I agree. Cause I didn't have, you know, I love those stories. Like I'm a big, a big uh, appreciator of the work of Byron Katie and I practiced it yeah. a lot and mm-hmm. it's helped me in so many ways. Um, and I love her story of just waking up, like literally yeah. waking up just changed, like, like right. everything's done now. And mm-hmm. I can, I remember the feeling of everything being done, but my mm-hmm. mind wasn't there yet. Like I wasn't, it was, it was not, it was fragmented, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, it was still like one part of me was opening but yeah. the other part didn't understand it. So it, the next big chunk was top yeah. surgery. You know, I, I fell in love with my now wife mm-hmm. and I wouldn't be naked in bed with her mm-hmm. because I didn't want her to know I had breasts. Like I was like hiding them so well with like vests and flowy shirts. I had this whole like bohemian vibe. I, I still oh do, God. but I, especially yeah. then <laughs> um, yeah. because it hid my breasts, it took all the attraction off of my body and onto my clothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I remember saying like coming out to her in bed and telling her why and like that I have these breasts and she didn't even flinch. Like she's, that was great oh. to her. She's like, Oh, this is amazing. You know, I don't mind at all, but I still had internalized hatred for that part of my body. Mm-hmm. So I went to a plastic surgeon in the upper East side and I got top surgery. And as I was, I never even told anybody this, but as I was under anesthesia for the top surgery, I had this, insane like journey you know you, you can call it like a shamanic journey if you want to oh my but, god okay i'm just like <laughs> i am obsessed with your story louise I a shamanic journey through anesthesia i'm listening <laughs> it's so intense so, so i i emerged from the anesthesia and I, I started writing about this journey like all these images that came all these moments yeah. i had and i wrote this like 10 song opera you know of of this mm-hmm. journey and it was so intense and then i yeah. i listened to it after i recorded it, i listened to it to kind yeah. of understand it and i had noticed that through this journey there was this this decision i made it was so much part of this intergenerational pattern of the repression of the feminine mm-hmm. in my family and after yeah. I emerged from that, I, what I got from this journey was um, you can't repress the feminine. 
Like you, you mm-hmm. can, but then something gets toxic and gets out of balance. Yeah. And I was so out of balance at that point because I was repressing a feminine part, um, like my biology, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So that was my turning point. Cause then even, I would even say, even when I say that was my turning point, there were like three or four more years of just kind yeah. of like, I'm a guy, look at me. Like no one can tell because I have very little scarring. I had small breasts and mm-hmm. I have a big lateral yeah. scar. So I, I was just like passing, you know, I felt like yeah. I was in drag, like full on male drag. And I had a you know, beard and I started exercising a lot. And yeah. I, oh, this is great. And then, then I got, um, I had a major tooth infection uh-huh. and the pain in the tooth went to my stomach and that stomach pain reminded me of all these sexual assault experiences I had blacked out. And so I'm sitting there in the car, my stomach's hurting, my tooth, my head's hurting, and they all come flooding in. And so oh. I'm like 26, 27, right before my Saturn return, this all comes flooding in. And then I realized, oh my God, I have, I have trauma. Like I had no, I had no idea. I had trauma. I felt I was done. I felt the surgery. I felt everything was over. And I was like, in this pretty box of, I was modeling. I thought I was in this perfect box. Oh of a person. My and, and, it, and it came in. I went wow. to therapy for a couple of years, had the identity yeah. childhood sexual assault survivor, and then somehow <clears throat> found a somatic therapist. And I found them because for the first time in my life, I was getting panic attacks after not having them for a decade because mm-hmm. of these new identities from being a rape survivor or sexual, yeah. all these, all these things. Mm-hmm. And so to make a really long story story end here, yeah. The the final ending for me of that journey was the smack therapist. She helped facilitate me to feel how my body was now mm-hmm. and not identify with the body that was injured by people or mm-hmm. myself. And mm-hmm. that update, I felt the charge that I never knew was even there for the first time. Then I felt a release. Mm-hmm. And then I went public with my story. I started talking about having breasts and being intersex. And then everything shifted. I didn't repress mm. that feminine anymore. I just let it all come out. Just let it all come out. And then since then, you've got gotten training and, you know, created your whole business around this. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and all my training, again, it, it was it came after my own Right, your training, own experience. Right? I yeah, exactly. and just oh my gosh, having the experience of being like, oh now I understand. Yes, like I had to go through the training to understand what I had been through. That's exactly right. Wow. Oh, this is um, I just love every thank you. I, I love specificity, it just mm. turns me on so mm. much. Oh good. I'm so I've never told that much of my story yeah. before that way so I just love that this came out in like this level of detail I think like this is this is the this is the real gold and mm. you know I think I um the thing that I am just getting from your whole journey is just like trusting that voice inside of you, trusting your desire one step at a time, you know, putting attention on these little things and over time, the impact that that can have. A hundred percent. And when you talk about desire, I keep thinking through the somatic lens, like capacity, you know, you have to have capacity for desire. Because mm. right, because there is a charge with desire, and that charge has to have space to move and take up your body, or oh, else you'll, yeah. you'll constrict and you won't be able to handle it. Oh my gosh! Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that's, I think that's really what I'm learning more than ever in these last yeah. couple of years. And that's what I'm teaching is like how to build capacity. Oh my gosh. Yes. This is why like conversations about sex and conversations about money, oh, yeah. people just completely avoid them because it is so high sensation and they don't have the capacity. hundred percent. And the same thing with trauma healing, like you walk yeah. into an office and you're supposed to tell a stranger your most intimate traumatic experiences with zero practice of capacity. So you're literally shutting down your own nervous system because you can't handle the activation. So the beauty about capacity and charge and like Mm -hmm. to go back to your word energy, it's non-dual in my practice. So when I'm teaching my courses or I'm working with clients, Mm -hmm. it's the the charge we're talking about is non-dual. It's just charge, whether it comes from, I've just fell in love or -hmm. comes from a flashback just occurred. It's charge. And when we learn how to build somatic capacity for the charge, we handle everything, like the the horrible experiences and the most profoundly beautiful ones. You have space for both. Right. Oh, I love that. Yeah, ladies, you have to expand your capacity to have your desire. No question. Well, um, so tell me, I'd love to talk a little bit about this um, ex- like expansion of capacity. Like this really feels like the crux of this conversation and the crux of your work. Um, 100%. Yeah. So I'd love to just, uh, yeah, hear more about how, sort of how, like how you see that and how you work with that idea. So we first have to understand the physiology of trauma. So when a traumatic event occurs, the trauma isn't the event. The trauma is the body's response to the event. The event is just the event. What makes it traumatic is how the body responds to it. So if someone bangs on your door, that's the stimulus. And then a a charge comes through your body. If your body constricts around that charge and is unable to move it, and you don't regulate afterwards, you don't find safety afterwards, that's a traumatic event. So these, maybe not banging on a door, but I'm just giving a simple example. Traumatic events don't have to be abuse. They don't have to be wars. They don't have to be anything. Someone living a really sheltered life could have the most traumatic events than someone who grew up in war. And I have clients to prove that. Mm, But the mm -hmm. piece here is the physiology of trauma. So when that charge comes through your body, in response to what we're perceiving as a threat, and that's the important part, Mm -hmm. the event is perceived as a threat the body physically constricts to brace for impact because it's trying to survive. So it's going into a survival response. When that charge comes up and the constriction happens at the same time, we're unable to fight flight. So we don't usually punch, we don't yell, we don't run. We go into a freeze response or we go into a fawn response where we kind of like talk our way out of it or try to appease. Uh, Meanwhile, all that charge is just building. So the charge gets kind of like imploded when it's intended to propel you away to save you. Mm-hmm. And, and in that implosion is when we start experiencing the charge as trauma because it overwhelms the nervous system. And then we have to dissociate from the body because it's too uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. In that dissociation is essentially the traumatic event at that moment when you dissociate. That's why people lose time or they say, oh my God, I remember looking at myself from across the room. That's those high traumatic experiences. Mm. So coming from that in childhood or, or, or growing up in um, an environment in childhood that's traumatic. Yeah. So we call childhood developmental trauma. And all it really means is your, your body's developing in a physiology of constriction. So by the time you're like a, in your teens, by the time you're an adult, 
all you know is constriction. It just, and you don't know it. I, I shouldn't even right. say that. It's all you feel. Right. And it's familiar. It's all, it's all you remember somatically. So whenever you move toward a person or an experience or an event that creates expansion in you, it actually feels like threat because the mm-hmm. body's memory of expansion is when something threatening occurred. So mm-hmm. it overcouples expansion with threat and it, it overcouples uh, constriction with safety. So this is why someone says, um, I'm giving you this great opportunity to do dot, dot, dot that you always wanted to do. And you freeze yeah. or you quote self-sabotage or all these things come up to block mm-hmm. you from doing it. It's because the body actually feels on a physiological level that that event will threaten your life. So we have to uncouple that. And by uncoupling it, we start to create an actual physical capacity that actual tendons and tissues and muscles start to relax and expand. And the Mm. blood pressure comes down, the breath goes deeper. And that's the state of what we call regulation. Mm. That's the state of restore and the state of capacity building. And in that, you're able to stand in front of a huge audience. You're able to have like the best sex of your life. You're able to make money if you need to make money or watch four kids if you have kids and your mother or father or parent. Mm-hmm. You're able to do those things. There's all this capacity for you to handle the charge. It's just moving through you and right. lighting you up versus shutting you down. Oh my gosh. This is, um, I, I love this lens, you know, cause I, I, there's so much out there about like, oh, you're just like, like sabotaging yourself you're sabotaging yourself just (laughs) just like go we love that (laughs) just go for your goals you don't have to you know feel the fear and do it anyway (laughs) it's so misinformed oh my gosh because it's not about fear it's about threat yeah Right. And that stuff has always felt so, you know, just like inauthentic to me, but you're really giving me, uh, like a language and the deeper thing for why. Yeah. I'm I'm glad you brought all those examples in because this work completely destigmatizes each individual perception we have of ourselves. So we're no longer lazy. We're no longer slackers. We're no longer self-sabotaging we're not, you know, masochists. What we are is we're functioning our minds, like you would say, have a desire or have identified the desire, Mm -hmm. but the physiology of the desire can't live in your body because there's no capacity. So like when Carolyn talks about the divided will somatically, Mm -hmm. there's this intention from the mind of what I want and what I know I need. And then there's this reality in the body of, I don't have capacity for the thing I want or need. It's so innocent and it's so unconscious. (sighs) It's, no, it, this is just really, I'm like, this is everything I've like known to be true, but yes. I, until this conversation, I don't think I, I like fully had it worked out, you know? Yes, like I get this. it. That's how I felt too. <laughs> I'm just like, oh, you know, and in my own personal life, like I see what's possible as I, like, I'm totally expanding my capacity. Right. Yes. And my business is a direct reflection of, I mean, everything in my life, right. It's just a direct reflection of like the energy that I can actually hold consciously. That's a hundred percent accurate. Especially when you say I'm expanding my capacity Because there's no getting there. You're not just like, oh, and I'm at full capacity. Every day is a practice of how much can I expand my capacity. 
Yeah. And then when it doesn't want to expand, how well do I listen to that and let it rest so that it can expand later? It's an ongoing practice. Totally. Oh my gosh. It is, it is such a practice. And my egoic mind wants to be like, but we should be blah, blah, blah. Yes. We should have this, you know, thing or that thing. And my body just doesn't ever question it. It's like, here's where we are. Okay. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and that's what I love about the work that I do is, yeah. is the mind learns how to relate to the body. Uh-huh. versus they're opposing each other. Because if mm-hmm. I'm saying I should, or I really want, or why don't I have, those thoughts are actually creating more charge that's living on top of an already compromised nervous system. Mm-hmm. So my thoughts around what I'm calling desire, what I'm calling my goals are actually right. working to freeze me more. So it it just like, it all works against us and we don't even realize it. Yeah, this is what happens when people like set goals that are just totally from their mind. That's right. (laughs) That's right. It's like if you don't have the capacity to take a deep breath, like everyone listening, if you look around your room right now and you don't have the capacity to take in what's in front of you right now, that's your first step. You have to start there. You can't go any further. Yeah. Well, and how do you... um, yes 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 um and what I guess what would you give to people who are in that place like as a practice right if it's like whoa I people realizing like I don't even I'm not even fully conscious and like receiving and having what I have yes yeah oh my gosh yeah that happens all the time (laughs) my favorite thing is a pillow like that's where you start because everyone has a pillow yeah. You grab a pillow, you put it over your belly and you just hug it as tight as you want to, as, as good as that yeah. feels. And you just start by, can my body receive the pillow? What part of my body receives it? And when you really look into it and like you pet it with your hand, you breathe into it, you mm-hmm. maybe put it over your lap, like wherever it wants to be, yeah. you'll find a part of your body that enjoys that pillow being there. And mm-hmm. from that one place, that's where you have some capacity. So when you feel pleasure... Pleasure is just, mm. I have capacity for charge. If I'm getting a massage and it feels so good. My body has capacity to feel the charge from the person's hands. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's like the pleasure we get from that pillow or a bath or music mm-hmm. that's expanding our capacity in that moment. Mm-hmm. So we use those things like pillows and such as tools to find the part of us that is here and likes being here, even if it's just our stomach. Yep. And from there, what's it like to be in this space or in this light? Wow. It's like a stepping, little stepping step. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But if you really, I can just imagine if you really take that on, just getting present with a pillow. Oh my gosh. There's so much information there. Yeah. So much. It can be orgasmic. Like there's so oh, much sensation there. Totally. Just holding a pillow. <laughs> no, I love this. I mean, I one of the things I have my clients do is just like receive like a cup of tea or something. Yes, it's a great one. You know, just like actually tell your partner, here's exactly how I would like it. And then the difference that it is to really receive it mm-hmm. versus just like, oh, I'm going to drink a cup of tea. Yes, that's a, and we do that in my course. We do this, oh, yeah. this like pleasure practice uh-huh. where you drink warm tea or you let a little piece of chocolate melt in your mouth or you mm-hmm. lay in a bath or you rub your body. And just like, what does it feel like if I embody this experience? Like the warm liquid in my mouth, down my throat, in my stomach, 
how does my chest respond? How do my feet respond? So much information, in like five minutes when you do that. It's amazing. Oh my gosh. I love this. Well, and, and then for those people who are like, okay, I'm really ready to expand my capacity. Um, you know, I imagine this is like your whole entire program. <laughs> um, but what would you say to somebody that's sort of sitting here thinking, okay, I think I'm receiving what I have and, you know, I've done some work and how do I really keep expanding my nervous system's capacity for everything that I desire? It's very similar to what you were saying about my story earlier. Mm -hmm. When you said I was following that desire, mm -hmm. it's like it, once I have more capacity, that sense of desire and that sense of unitedness with everything around me is mm -hmm. so much more clear. I can feel it. So the practice is not so much of um, making a specific goal. Goals are fine, but it's yeah. not really about the goal. It's more about, oh, okay, if I'm taking in my room and yeah. my body feels like, oh my God, I love this room. The more I practice that, the more I'm attracted to that sensation. So I'm just naturally going to follow the things in life that bring me more of that sensation. And that's how we just naturally mm -hmm. grow and change without even having to think about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like nature. It's just really, it's a natural rhythm. Yeah. Totally. Mm, I love that. Um, okay. I want to talk about your course in a moment uh, if, for those people who are interested, but I, I have one, I think I have one final question. I'm like, I could just sit here and talk to you for hours. We could talk um, for hours. Huh? <laughs> but I think, um, I think the, uh, the one sort of last thing that I was curious about is um, how you how people can tell when they are inside of a trauma response? Mm -hmm. That's such a good question. It's very nuanced. So mm -hmm. the first thing we want to understand is when you're in a trauma response, you're reflexive. Yeah. So something is happening without your permission. So for example, if I work all day and yeah. then I take the subway home and I walk into the house and I just grab a bag of chips and I sit down and start eating them. Yeah. And I didn't have to think about it. I didn't think about getting the chips. I didn't think about sitting and watching the television, but I noticed here I am sitting watching TV. I'm yeah. in a reflexive uh, behavior yeah. that is uh, my body is choosing to move to, to give me some down regulation. My, my activation is so high from the day that it's looking yeah. for an activity or a food that will depress it a bit to bring some balance. Mm -hmm. So we're looking for what's reflexive. What do I do or say, or how do I behave that I don't think about or choose to behave? It just happens. Yep. That's one of our reflexive behaviors in the moment. It feels like uh, activation. It feels like blood pressure rising. It feels mm -hmm. like a uh, jaw getting tight mm -hmm. shoulders, pulling up to your ears, physical constriction and pain is yes. what it feels like physiologically. And then all those behaviors expressed from that state. So it's really mm -hmm. learning the difference between constriction, expansion, and neutrality. And when you learn those three different states, you start to understand, oh, my arm right now is constricted and activated. My stomach is expanded and relaxed. Because trauma isn't always full body. It could just be in the shoulder. Mm. It, it depends on what part of the body is storing the memory or the charge. So it's learning to feel those states gives us more information of where we are, you know, moment by moment. Wow. Constriction, expansion, or neutrality. That's right. Ah, oh, brilliant. 
Thank you so much. This uh, this has just been the most delightful way to start my Monday. Oh, <laughs> it's so fun talking to you. I love fun conversations. <laughs> You're easy to talk to. Well, thank you. Um, and so uh, I know you have a course coming up this fall. Um, and so for people who might be interested in your work, um, would love for you to share anything that you'd like to share. Yeah, this is my last course of this year. I'm going to do, you know, every year I do about three. Um, okay. This is the last one this year. It begins on Sunday, October 10th. Okay. The registration for it is September 12th. So from September 12th to September 19th, there's one week open to register. And get I in do there. That. <laughs> you have well, to get in there. <laughs> and I, I do that because yeah. um, I like the container. Oh, I like yeah. to have everyone ahead of time. There's in, We do food work. We do so many things in this six-week course. I like people to get prepared, actually get food and such prepared. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a method to the madness of you know a deadline. Um, so yeah, so anyone that. listening, that's there's a free webinar on Sunday, September 12th that explains everything about the course. And Great. you can show up live or get a replay. It's six weeks long. And we literally go through uh, in detail uh, most of what we expressed and talked about here. Mm-hmm. We learn how to feel trauma and then differentiate you know, trauma from a, a safety state. Mm-hmm. We learn about how food uh, activates, depresses, or heals trauma and how our food habits tell us where we're at emotionally and physically. Mm-hmm. Talk about co-regulation, which is like how we experience other people and relationships. We talk about <clears throat> our thoughts. We talk about the biology of belief. There's all these different experiences. Every six weeks we go into one, you know, specific piece of the the trauma healing puzzle. Um, and we have practice sessions. So we get together an additional time for an hour every week and practice the the exercises together. Um, it's, it's a beautiful space and the people are amazing. I'm endlessly, endlessly (laughs) shocked by these like brilliant people that come in and just do this work. It's, it's incredible. Well, you shouldn't be shocked because this is just a reflection of your energy. (laughs) (laughs) My energy is awesome because these people are amazing. Well, I think there's something to that. Um, Amazing. Well, we will include all of the links um, to that in the show notes. And um, I I encourage anyone who's interested in Luis's work to definitely um, reach out. Thank you so much for your generosity and uh, and for being here today. I really, really appreciate you and just what you stand for. Oh, thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. Absolutely. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you got something from this episode, please share it with someone in your life and pop on over to iTunes to give us a five-star review. I'm so committed to more people custom creating their sex, relationships, and lives from desire. And this podcast is a big part of that. If you have ideas for the show or want to learn more about working with me as a coach, Head on over to my Instagram at Kaylin McDuff or my website, KaylinMcDuff.com. See you next time.